This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Conversely, so I talked about the dystopian future. Let's talk about the utopian future of driverless vehicles. If I can essentially swarm these vehicles so I can pace them inches apart, bumper to bumper, I can fit more cars on a road, which means I can evacuate more people faster, safely. And this is the hope for this technology. I'm so stoked to have Mary Jo and Evans with me. And uh, Mary, Mary Jo and I go, and like a lot of people who I've interviewed in the past, we go back uh, a long way. We used to teach together some of the CERT programs and things like this, and it's uh, been great. And so Mary Jo is now up in Sacramento County, California, and um, she's kind of a futurist when it comes to emergency management. You know, she's really into the technology side of things. I learned a lot about social media, and uh, back when we were doing, I think it was the... Uh, the Ducks game, wasn't it? When we're doing the Twit Grid and watching all the stuff that's oh, going on. Oh, yeah. Tweet Grid. <laughs> Tweet Grid doesn't even exist anymore. Right. That's yeah. how fast technology changes. <laughs> so, Mary Jo, welcome to Ian Weekly. Thank you. Yeah, nice been, to be here. Yeah, it's been a long time. You might hear me go back a little bit when we're talking, um, referring to her as MJ. So, that's Mary Jo. So, for all of you guys. So, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your journey to emergency management. Uh, So I didn't even know emergency management existed as a career field until about 2005 when uh, I was working for the city of Anaheim. And as a management intern, I got thrown the city's hazard mitigation plan and been told basically complete this in about six months. And through that process, I got to meet uh, all sorts of individuals at the county, at the city, uh, and just really started to understand what emergency management was even about. And so the first time that I ran into you was in the 2007 fires over in Santiago Canyon. So that was my first day on the job as an emergency manager working with uh, Ellen yeah. at the city. And I had come over from human rights. So I had a, a weird, squirrely, I started as a lifeguard of all things, but <laughs> um, weird, squirrely rode uh, through the city. And I had left human resources and gone over to emergency management because um, there had been some previous incidents where I had helped out. So in 2005, I think there were some fires, but also the Prado Dam had a little bit of an issue. <laughs> and I had just finished the hazard mitigation plan. So I was aware of the map and all the other stuff and they threw me in essentially the management department operations center although uh-huh. I had no idea it was called that right. uh, at the time and that's when I got to meet Ellen so a position opened up in 2007 and she took me to the uh, fire camp and that was literally my first day on the job as an emergency manager. Look at this, everybody. The first day on the job as an emergency manager, and she meets the governor of the state of California. At the time, <laughs> was Arnold Schwarzenegger, because he was out giving the tour. He was. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> That's why we went there, is to go meet him. And I thought, oh, this, this job field is kind of awesome. I get to meet celebrities yeah. on a regular basis. <laughs> so, yeah, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Um, so that's kind of cool. And then um, you got involved with the volunteer management side of things. I did. So uh, when I was a lifeguard, I ran a huge program of aquatic staff and volunteers and worked in recreation. And recreation, you do everything with no money. And so running a volunteer program seemed normal to me to run you know, a group of people who are interested in a topic uh, with very little funding, although Anaheim had pretty decent funding through UASI, thankfully. But I had experience running volunteer programs, working with folks um, through recreation, and it just seemed a normal fit to make that transition through CERT and emergency management. That's really where I learned a lot of the basics. Right. So how did you get into technology? Well, it was because of CERT. Uh, I think you and I and Stacy Gerlich taught a class, and she was all enamored at the fact that I use this thing called QR codes. <laughs> and we created a choose-your-own-adventure exercise for the CERT folks using QR codes, and we made little videos and um, had them go to physical locations in a building, go find this QR code, scan it, watch the video, and make a decision on what to do next. And it, Everybody loved it. Yes. Well, with that came an interest in social media, mostly because I wanted to recruit volunteers. And social media is pretty new at the time, right? Social media was incredibly new at the time, specifically for government agencies to use them. It mm-hmm. was really about posting what you ate for breakfast. Right, right. And in a lack of understanding PIO kind of world, I knew it was a way around the media. I wasn't getting my press releases to get any traction. We weren't getting enough people signing up for classes. And I thought this is a free opportunity to advertise our training to the local community. And to some extent it worked. It almost worked a little too well because when Anaheim started having some fires, um, and what happens after a disaster or during a disaster, people crave information and they go to those social media sources. So as soon as there was a realization that our cert page or whatever was posting information, it grew and it grew larger than the city's account at the time <laughs> with followers. And so we had to make some adjustments with how information flowed. And I was really careful to talk with our PIOs, but my interest kept growing. And after Hurricane Sandy, I realized that people, and even before Hurricane Sandy, that people are going to rely on social media for information to help themselves out, to help each other out, because people shared information to help one another out, where the resources were, where gas was located, but also that it was something uh, that we couldn't ignore. And Craig Fugate had a, a huge role in that, too, in expressing that government needs to be transparent and social media is one way to achieve that. I think if I remember correctly, the more city Oklahoma tornado was one of the... I think t- Joplin. Oh, Joplin, you're right. Joplin. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I remember it was one of those tornadoes. Um, and they, uh, they had a group of volunteers that, again, volunteers will fill a void, will fill a need. If we haven't planned for it or thought about it as emergency managers, folks will coordinate. We saw this in Harvey with the Zello app. Yeah, Zello. People will find that niche and they will fill it. And in Joplin, they filled it with Google Sheets and Google Forms Mm -hmm. uh, to coordinate volunteer activities, boots on the ground volunteer activities that were just surging into their location. And volunteers put some coordinated effort into that and uh, it grew into its own 
little way of tracking and monitoring volunteers, just like Zello has turned into a new communication feature for the Cajun Navy and other volunteers. Right, right, right. I did actually a, an episode on the Zello <laughs> app with the Zello CEO, and it was it was amazing of, of, of how that turned into that you know quickly. Well, it, people will adapt the tools that they know and have access to, usually the ones that are free, mm-hmm. um, but that allow them to communicate and coordinate with other people who like-mindedly want to help other people. Uh, and you put that together with um, somebody with some, um, some energy, some force to be reckoned with, and now you've got a team. Um, that kind of how Team Rubicon kind of grew right. from a couple people, right? right. Um, so these are, are things that we shouldn't ignore in emergency management, and we shouldn't ignore these technological developments that lead us to new places. And if we're not imagining what can happen 10, 15, 30, 50, 90 years from now, right. we can imagine what can happen climactically in weather and those kinds of things. But are we imagining what can change technologically when a technological year is a couple of months? Right. right. It's crazy. <laughs> I mean, Apple just released a new phone a couple of weeks ago and... They're already thinking about the next product five years from now. Forget what they're even going to offer next year. Right. And I'm sure all the other technology companies are thinking similarly. Well, think about the the AED, right? <laughs> you know, back when I started uh, <clears throat> in 1988 as a... Uh, <laughs> In the, in the field, you know, you wouldn't think of that big, huge aid or it was a defibrillator with a phone attached to it that you had to carry up and it was super heavy. That it would be something that's smaller than a laptop in some cases that everybody has access to. And so, you know, just think about those technological advances, you know. Well, and I just remember when the technology became available to the public for AEDs, the mm-hmm. public access defibrillation trials right. or the pad yeah. getting access. And I, uh, the city was um, very interested in installing an AED on every floor of City Hall. And I looked around and I said, well, best practices, what about my lifeguard program? These are kids, I should say young adults, uh, who have the potential of actually rescuing an individual from the water and saving their life. And you're telling me that somebody on the fourth floor of City Hall gets an AED, but this pool does not. Mm. Fortunately, uh, a captain at the fire department heard me and provided some AEDs to the pools during the summer, and they were the backup AEDs for the fire department. Right. But it took me basically putting it in legal terms. You're setting a new best practice mm-hmm. standard in the city and not giving me access to it. Right, right. <laughs> and I, I've fought that battle with each of these different technology implementations. You know, you gave me access to social media to communicate with volunteers, and now this is how I see the public using it. Mm-hmm. How are we going to change? And how are we going to change and adapt to the next technological advancement is what I ask of all emergency managers. So in uh, 19... 2019. <laughs> in uh, 2000, I think it was like 2009, 2010, somewhere around there, you kind of became the county of Orange's, you know, go-to person when it comes to social media and stuff like that. You know, how did you transition from, to, how did you get to that point? You know, at that point in time, I was so personally interested in it. Uh-huh. I invested a lot of my personal time in learning about it. Not so I could be some countywide expert or anything like that. In fact, I really don't believe experts exist. I learn so much still about social media from other people. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But uh, every morning when I got up and walked on the treadmill, I would read TechCrunch and Mashable. (laughs) And um, 
had the an app that would basically feed me these stories and I would spend about an hour just reading every single there was a a statistic. What did they say? All statistics are made up. Ninety-seven point five percent of all statistics. Sure, um, but there was some statistic I had read that basically equated the number of hours you spend on something as equivalent to a master's degree or a PhD, mm. PhD degree. It's like the ten thousand hours or something like that. Yeah, like, and I thought, oh my gosh, Malcolm I've, Gladwell, I've Malcolm actually Gladwell. done that with <laughs> yeah. social media. Right. Yeah. Somebody asked me, and I said, well, every morning I read all these different articles that are published. You know, and there's hundreds of them that are available every single day, and they publish them on their own. Facebook has a blog, Twitter has a blog, and I would read all this stuff and just digest it. And that's kind of how we become experts in anything. Right. Just we retain a different set of knowledge and skills in our brain than somebody else. And so when people would ask a question and I could answer it, it wasn't that I was some expert, it's just that I happened to have this knowledge and retained it. Right or that I was applying it in my program. And the more I applied that knowledge, the more people would ask me questions and the more I would read <laughs> so I could answer the questions. Right. Yeah, I, used to, I used to be like, oh, we have a question about whatever technology is. I'd be like, ah, uh, uh, ask MJ. <laughs> <laughs> you know, give her a call. She, she'll have the answer. Yeah. yeah. Well, I try. And my goal was always to be helpful to other individuals because I saw that trend changing where people were becoming more and more reliant on social media, even to take action. And Amanda Ripley's talked about it and Dennis mm -hmm. Maletti's talked right. about it, that milling feature. Um, and we as emergency managers have to reduce that as much as possible. And the way I saw my ability to reduce it is to provide the same piece of information in as many different potential sources as possible so that people are being bombarded by that information and hopefully make a decision that much faster. Whether it works or not, I have no academic research to confirm, <laughs> right. um, but I hope it has some impact. So in um, Southern California, probably Northern California too, but I can just only talk about what I know. <laughs> so in Southern California, when we have fast-moving fires and information needs to be shared quickly, even like Orange County Fire Authority, the U.S. Fire Service, all those organizations are going directly to Twitter and saying, look, it, this is going to be your best updated information. You know, the website is, is what it is, but Twitter seems to be the feed. And then we have an organization in Orange County called Radio C, and they're using a Twitter feed to get good information. Not not just any kind of information, but good, mm -hmm. really good information up to the minute where you can go and get this information. So, you know, I see this trend going to going forward with, with that as emergency managers. And by the way, guys and gals, again, <laughs> I always have to apologize. I'm from New York. Guys is everybody. <laughs> Um, so, or I'll go Southern, all y'all. Um, you go out there, and if you're not in social media, you not only are behind the eight ball, it's you're dead in the water at this point. But that being said, so you've gone further in, in technology outside of just social media, and there's an organization that you're a part of. What's it called? So I'm a part of the International Association of Emergency Managers, and there is a caucus called the Emerging Technology Caucus. And for lack of a better description, it's a bunch of emergency management geeks who love technology. And I can't say that- That's like a geek and a geek. It's, it's like the <laughs> ultimate geek, right? Because it's a field that we love. 
plus technology. It's like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. And so I, I just kind of found my people. I found my tribe. Um, one year I went to IAEM and they had a booth up and met a couple of people. And I had been running the Anaheim Cert Twitter at that point in mm. time. And I had made a fatal mistake early on, unbeknownst to me, where uh, I was starting to comment as Anaheim Cert but Anaheim Cert became more and more my voice. Mm. And so finally I got my own Twitter handle, which I had been resisting for quite some time. And so I introduced myself to this group of people who have since become my my little tribe um, of fellow geeks. And um, they're like, okay, whatever. And we don't know you from Adam. And then I had mentioned just in passing to somebody that, well, I ran the Anaheim Cert account. And you would have thought a celebrity walked in the room the way they reacted to me. I thought, this, these are the coolest people ever. They think I'm special. This is so awesome. Oh, my gosh. I really don't know anything about technology. I hope I can learn something from them. <laughs> and so I just had a, a, an interest. And so I've, I found the people who also had that interest. And so I don't have to know everything about technology technology, but I know somebody who does. Uh-huh, right. And that's been my philosophy of, you know, I want to learn certain things. I want to learn about driverless cars. I want to learn about home automation technology because I think home automation technology is the new alert and warning system. Mm. I don't know about you, but I've completely given up cable TV. I only have cable because it provides me internet access. That's what I have to, yeah. And so I stream everything. Senator Thune has a bill, I forget what number it is right now, but he has a bill out that essentially will study the impact of pushing CAP um, iPods alert technology to streaming devices. I kind of go back on that, and there's interesting, and I don't know what bill it is, but I know they're talking about cable companies not wanting iPods to go across their their feed do you know anything about that i don't okay um i don't know if that's part of the net neutrality stuff or something else but um the senate bill would only study the issue it wouldn't require it as of yet and i believe that would still potentially be controlled by the fcc but and i unfortunately don't know enough about this bill beyond its existence and that i've read it but the background or the sponsors and all that kind of stuff not too sure but you know, as people get rid of regular standard TV, how are we notifying them? Sonoma fires, 10 p.m., people are asleep in bed. I've encountered this in Sacramento. Oroville Dam has this little tiny problem. <laughs> Second tallest dam in the United States. Um, massive structural deficit to the spillway. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, and start alerting people. And it got later and later into the evening hours that we were trying to contact people. And 10 o'clock news ends. How are you going to get a hold of people outside of social media? And who watches the 10 o'clock news anymore? And who watches the 10 o'clock news? So you've got radio, if they're listening, apps. So your SoundCloud, um, Pandora, Spotify, all those different apps where people are streaming stuff. Now do we have, you know, iHeartRadio, do we have an opportunity to push information to those sources but at 10 p.m you're asleep in your home you turn your phone off or you're charging it next to your bedside how are you going to get an alert message right is it going to come through your phone are you going to turn it off like everything else are you going to wake up and be do i need to send the alert as an emergency manager three or four times to get you up out of bed or could I potentially push a message that links to your home automation systems, which now as homes are being built, are being built with these systems integrated into them. 
can I push a message and have your fire alarm also act as a speaker, which exists, by the way, this huh. technology exists, and now I can alert you. MJ, you're freaking me out a little bit. Well, it, it's, okay, it's super big brother. I get it. I, I totally get the big brother aspect of it. It freaks me out. But at the same time, if I can push a piece of information and your house is now telling you there is danger outside your doors, right. you need to pack up and leave because there's a fire on the way. And by the way, here's the route you need to take. Is that better? Super big brother. We need we have we have huge hurdles in emergency management to deal with data security, right. to deal with, you know, who should and could access this technology to push that kind of message. But we're not having those conversations right now and we need to be. So California Edison and I'm sure other power companies have the same ability to turn my air conditioner off. Yeah, smart meter, right? Right. Right. Um, so why can't it talk to you and tell you there's a power outage in the Could area? it turn lights on? I don't know. (laughs) But, okay, so home automation technology, essentially you set up what's called a scene. So your phone knows, based on your geolocation, when you arrive home. As you approach your driveway, your garage door lifts up, the lights in the house come on, your air conditioner may have been cooling for the last hour, um, but maybe uh, your TV turns on to your favorite sports channel, whatever it is, but all these things happen. How? Why? Because you programmed it to Mm -hmm. on your phone that when you reach this specific place on planet Earth, your phone would send a signal and your house would respond. See, I I was thinking, like... The fire departments, when I was working in EMS, it came to the point to where we used to have these things called plectrons, and a beep would turn on, and you would literally wake up with your heart racing because it's so loud. And so they said, oh, that's killing firefighters because it's giving them heart attacks in the yeah. middle of the night. And so they came up with like, this kind of gentler way and doing like this voiceover thing saying, there's an emergency, and they would turn the lights on for you. Oh, like dim them and then raise them up? Raise them up, and so you get this light on. So, I mean, we've been doing this for years now with, with fire departments. So one of the um, one of the fire alarms that you can buy can do different lighting features. So on your phone, you can pick, I call it like the disco ball, because you can pick whatever color you want, and you can set it to the scene. So if your color that you pick for the scene of emergency is red, red flashing strobe light, essentially, if you're hearing impaired and you see this red light flashing because you programmed it in to be an emergency, amazing, you know, how we can communicate with folks who have those needs visually because they integrate it into something they program into their phone. Now we just need to communicate with the phone and communicate with the house right. to push the message that we need them to receive and, and react. And there was a problem with that during the Sonoma fires where there were deaf people who didn't get the alerts because it was at nighttime and they didn't hear people honking the horn with that fire was moving so oh, fast. Oh, really? I didn't even yeah. hear that. Yeah. So, and there were, and that was a conversation that we started having of down here, you know, so how do we reach out to people like that? And I guess they would have to give us access to their home or something like that. Right. Hey, let's just take about uh, 60 seconds here and listen to our sponsors. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking, allowing emergency communication, even when networks are down, augmented reality, and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people 
to help each other stay safe and thrive. You know, I recorded this episode at the CISA conference in California. And one of the things about attending conferences isn't just all the great talks and information that's handed out and also the booths that you get to go see all the cool vendors and stuff like this. It's also the connections that you make. And even though Mary Jo Flynn and I go way back, we haven't seen each other for a long time, so we get to run each other at these conferences. And so it's like a big family reunion sometimes, but you also get to meet new people. So do you have your reservations yet for the EMLC conference this May 29th to the 30th in Phoenix, Arizona? Right now, you save $100 on your registration fees. This ends February 28th. Students, you guys get a conference discount for the entire thing. So go to emlc.us and sign up for your conference today. Hey guys, join EM Weekly on March 28th for the Emerging Technologies for Emergency Management webinar. The sign information is going to be in the show notes. So you can also talk with Mary Jo Flynn and ask her all the tech questions that you have burning inside you right now after listening to this episode. Don't forget to check out our sponsors, Titan HST and the EMLC, and let them know that EM Weekly sent you. Now on to the rest of the interview. And there was a problem with that during the Sonoma fires where there were deaf people who didn't get the alerts because it was at nighttime and they didn't hear people honking the horn with that fire was moving so oh, fast. Oh, really? I didn't even yeah. hear that. Yeah. So, report. and there were, and that was a conversation that we started having of down here, you know, so yeah. how do we reach out to people like that? And I guess they would have to give us access to their home or something like that, right? So the home automation technology is something you install because you want that technology in your home. So it may be years before every home is standard with that. But we wouldn't have access to it necessarily. Not unless we change the iPods technology that it can reach those devices and push it. It's all internet connected. So we need to reach the internet in a way that the device receives it and knows how to interpret that message as generate this scene that I've Mm -hmm. created and programmed into my phone. So, I mean, so we need to work with technologists, we need to work with academics, we need to work with, you know, just the general public in coming to an understanding and a consensus, how we would want to use this technology, where it's prudent and appropriate to use, understanding the big brother implications of it needing to protect data and security and cybersecurity. Privacy too. Privacy, of course. But all these things, we need to have conversations about them because televisions and, you know, these things are just going away Mm -hmm. for people to be alerted. And we're relying more and more on a cell phone device. Well, when the towers burn down and we don't have cellular signals until we get the cows up and transmitting signals again, we have a problem. And um, some other Senate bills that are going through include developing 5G networks. Right. But what we also need to start thinking LA City's about have a 5G network. are mesh networks. So yeah. essentially, it's a repeater network, but of cell phones right. and technology instead of radio signals like we would go to a repeater on a hilltop. So our, our sponsor, Titan HST, they're a mass communications company, and they have mesh networking capabilities within their alert system. And Vic is really... You know, talks about it a lot and kind yeah. of gets into it. And I had no clue, like, really what he was discussing. I had to ask him like three times, like, what exactly is the mesh network, Nick? You know, like, you know, it's he, essentially radio repeaters. Right. Yeah. But for cellular technology, other kind of stuff, it's, it's bouncing a signal from point A to point B. And if point A is lost, now I can reroute it through point Z or huh. Y. 
and still get to point B, but I've now rerouted that. And electric companies do this all the time in rerouting their transmission flows when there's an outage or a line down or whatever. And they can isolate that and, and get it to a small little locus. I remember back 2005. Some sound old. <laughs> More than a decade ago, yeah, Todd. <laughs> right. We were talking about doing, you guys out there that are techie people, you're going to kill me. I think they're called nodes. And we're looking at doing like nodes on top of power poles. So Anaheim actually installed a bunch of Wi-Fi. That's, uh, yeah. And they had fiber uh, that they had invested in early on. And we want to do that countywide. That was yeah, the idea. Yeah. yeah. But basically the technology had changed so rapidly that I there was Wi-Fi G and Wi-Fi something else. Yeah. I can't even remember what all of those were. But they were actually installed and usable by the police force to do their reports and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, and the fire department. And I think part of that infrastructure was how they were going to get the traffic signaling for lights and sirens. And right, right, right. So those infrastructure developments were put in place, but... Now we're getting to a place where cars may not even potentially have steering wheels one day. <laughs> okay. So this is a great segue. So, <laughs> so you have it's my fear. Yes. Yeah, you, yeah. So you have a speech that you're going to be doing. Um, yeah. and, and by the way, everybody, we're here at the CISA conference and you're going to hear that I've interviewed a few people here at the conference this week. And uh, MJ is one of the presenters and she's talking about Evacuating the driverless car. <laughs> Evacuating the driverless car. So <laughs> we had like a good conversation about that. We're talking about like all the debris and dust after earthquakes. And then it got me thinking about like when I was a kid, when the Mount St. Helens went off and, and it actually blackened the sun, yeah. uh, you know? So yeah, I could see the problem there. Or any major wildfire. Right. Uh, the last one that I remember that was really bad happened in Riverside, and I remember ash raining down in Orange County, yeah. coating our cars. Well, right now, it's my understanding, and I'm sure some technologist is going to say, well, that's not the way it works. Um, so I am happy to learn new information all the time, and if I've got it wrong, I will eat my words and let's go with that. But it's my understanding of how LiDAR systems work. The sensors have to be clean. Mm. So in a major wildfire, nothing is clean. Mm -hmm. Firefighters are not clean. The trucks aren't clean. There's dirt. There's dust. There's debris. And most certainly there's ash right. everywhere immediately adjacent to a major wildfire. So if we can't keep the sensors clean, how can we perceive the roadway? If the roadway is not clear and you rely on a visual indicator of that clean, pretty white or yellow stripe down mm -hmm. the center, how can we move cars? If cellular technology is, de they're dependent on cellular technology. If we're burning through cell towers in a major wildfire, how can we move that car? And now we potentially have created additional problems where people are buying them either as luxury vehicles to hang out and let somebody else do the driving or as replacement transportation for public transportation. Mm because typically they would use, and they have the means to buy it. So now we're also getting into an element where either people will have the means or not have the means to evacuate, especially if we are moving people out of public transportation into single cars. What's happening to public transportation infrastructure that we as emergency managers rely on to move groups of people in evacuations? Right. Will they exist? Will we have access to those resources? I don't know. But you look at these these systems and 
to truly have the kind of car that's predicted to be in the future that is 100% autonomous, completely controlled, can work in different weather and environmental conditions. Right now, they work in blue sky environments on perfect 72 degree days. I know one company is studying its ability to navigate through some very, very, very light snow mm. in terms of traction control and and some other stuff. Um, but beyond that, in a huge, heavy snowstorm, in whiteout conditions, roads already occupied with these vehicles, how are we going to move them? Or are we just going to sit them still and they have to be rescued? I ask more questions than right. I have answers for. I'm sorry. Now, now you popped another question in my head. So <laughs> if we start having these cars that could drive around, and uh, I think about this movie, a stupid movie, but it's stupid funny. It's the Hot Tub Time Machine Part 2. I don't think I've had the pleasure of seeing either of them. Okay. So <laughs> number one, they're silly movies. But uh, Part 2, they go into the future. Or in part when they go into the into the past, right? It's very sophomoric for those out there. Yes, you can judge me. So, <laughs> so they go into the future, and there's driverless cars that pick you up and drive you around. You know, and in the movie, the funny part about it is this one car gets mad at one of the guys, and his goal is to, to terminate this guy. <laughs> so the car's chasing him around, right? Okay. So that's the, the comedy part about it. But that got me thinking is that those cars were just driving around on their own. They didn't belong to anybody. Yeah. They weren't owned by... Todd DeVoe, you know, they were owned by the city or whoever. They just drove around, picked people up, dropped them off. Which are why more taxi-oriented companies are investing quite heavily in some of this technology. So, because that utopian vision of just requesting a car from your phone and it showing up and you going wherever you want to go right. is kind of a reality so, right now. So, <laughs> so, so this guy's to be thinking now. So those cars can just be like tooling around waiting for somebody to call them. Until a hacker gets to it and takes over a fleet of cars, <laughs> okay. which is why, which is why in the AV start legislation, you don't, you don't no, laugh at me. No, you're right. It, it, the driverless technology, one of the major concerns is a cybersecurity threat. Right, right. Where people can turn them into a weapon. Yeah. We've already seen cars used as weapons. Correct. Yeah. Um, in public settings. So why not do a fleet of yeah. driverless cars? I could gridlock an entire community. If I could take right. over multiple driverless cars. Well, that's what I was thinking right there. Like, not, how do we move them? I'm trying to do that. Let me clarify. <laughs> I'm not a bad guy. I think like one. <laughs> so, 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 I play so, one on TV. Yeah, so I'm not a bad guy. I just play one on TV. Yeah, there you so go. MJ's bad guy person here. She she <laughs> takes over everybody and she gridlets. So how do we move them? Like, how do we get them out of the way? Do we just like a bulldozer to them? If they get hacked? I'm just saying in general. Like oh, if, I don't know. You know, like you're talking about if they can't drive down the road anymore, I mean, are they going to be – I already have a hard enough time driving an emergency vehicle because okay, cars so get in the children, way. children, if you're looking for work opportunities in the future, tow truck driver. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, like, you know, people already don't get out of our way driving Code 3, you know, lights and sirens. I, I couldn't imagine a driverless car recognizes well i'm sure the driverless cars are having to recognize emergency vehicles um and but i mean like if the it's right like if they're damaged the rest of society if they're damaged um, like if the if they can't if the right now there are none that i don't think can be taken over and controlled by a human being and i might be wrong on that because 
I don't know that I can keep up with that much reading that fast. Right. But I I don't know. But it's something we need to think about and plan for. Oh, jeez. Right? Our, our evacuation routes. Now, right. okay, let's conversely. So I talked about the dystopian future. Let's talk about the utopian future of driverless vehicles. If I can essentially swarm these vehicles so I can pace them inches apart, bumper to bumper, I can fit more cars on a road, Mm -hmm. which means I can evacuate more people faster, safely. And this is the hope for this technology, not that the hackers will take over or, you know, they won't be able to gain sensor uh, information or mapping. Mm -hmm. What if we change the maps and close roads? How do we tell the car that the road has changed or that the road is no longer available? Part of my concern is that during Sonoma, Waze, and not to blame Waze, they're just looking for the most available route, they showed clear roads. So they evacuated and moved people onto these clear roads, which were on fire. (laughs) Why were they clear? Because they were on fire. Fire. So Waze has, um, and has had even, I think, before Sonoma, a program where cities and counties can subscribe, essentially, their GIS systems into Waze and directly communicate with Waze's platform. And then once you're into Waze, you're into Google Maps, Uber, and Lyft. And so all these mapping technologies can now be integrated with one push from your GIS. So if you're not registered through Waze's community portal, you need to do that, if only to communicate road closures effectively with the public. To put that into boot, I didn't even think about this. Oh, I told you we are going to go forever. Because like... (laughs) Because, like, with Waze right now, like, if there's a traffic collision, they'll push people into neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So I could imagine trying to get out of your neighborhood. So we're going to have to communicate with Waze if we're trying to get people out of that neighborhood or we're routing them into an area where it could be dangerous or they shouldn't be or right. it's going to get so congested that we slow or stop evacuations. That has to be thought through and planned with transportation planners. And we need to pre-program some of those routes into GIS so that at a push of a button when we're calling for evacuations, we're instantly closing those danger zones and moving people along the routes we need them to move. Because Waze will push them into the slower or into the slower neighborhood routes to physically move them. But what we need them going on are main arterials to move them right. out quickly. Right. Um, in large groups, and only main arterials can handle that volume, not a neighborhood street. And what if we do counterflow? I mean, will Waze yeah, understand I, that? Yeah, I don't know. Um, so far, I haven't, uh, other than subscribing to that and getting our GIS on board, yeah. um, I haven't, I admit, gone through their training. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. So I don't know about counterflow or how it would work, but it's certainly... Um, something that would be interesting for communities who use that. No kidding. We're, okay, so everybody, we're walking out of here with a whole bunch of questions. So. Yeah, I sorry. <laughs> I bring up far more questions than I have answers to. But I think it's important that we think about what these potential futures could be and we start talking about what we can do to mitigate those mm-hmm. issues now so that we're living the future we expect and not get hit with these unexpected consequences because – everybody adopts this particular technology and we're kind of like, huh? Right. And back to the utopian side of things, the trucking technology, the long haul trucking, if we were to pre-stage stockpiles ready to go and an autonomous vehicle could come hitch and pull that load into an area or a community that needs those resources and supplies 
And then we're really talking about having to coordinate transportation providers in the last couple of miles to move those goods and resources. So now we can have major staging sites that are safely outside of a dangerous area and be able to transport goods more easily. And this is the vision of the highway system back. 1950s. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're just doing it autonomously if we do it correctly. So that, that's and definitely if, Eisenhower's yeah. interstate system just on steroids. Yeah, or, why not? Or automated. Or automated. <laughs> um, and if we can move stuff last mile, hopefully we could get stuff to people faster and move goods more uh, efficiently into areas that need it. So, you know, even automated picking and loading of, of trucks who knows the potential? I, I mean, we have drones already, and everybody's yeah. used to the drones. I mean, obviously, we had them for combat, but they're being used for other things as well now. Predator drones that are not small, yeah. you know, um, but they change their name to pre- from Predator to something else on the <laughs> civilian side. I forget what they're called. <laughs> Non-Predator drones. So they have them flying around, doing already doing traffic surveys, things like yeah. this. Um, they're being used commercially already. I mean, you know, you can buy one over at your local fries and fly them around and take wedding pictures. You know, so people are used to those automated you know, you just put some buttons in and, and the GPS flies them around and does whatever you want to do with them. There's even drones that you can purchase that will, if you wear a, a watch, will follow, will follow you. You. you know, like a little dog or something, right? Or depending on the sensor package you put on it, you could put a flare package on it and see different stuff than if it was just a camera package. You could put another sensor on it that can fly into an area that potentially has a hazmat issue. Right, right. That's what I was going to talk about, the hazmat yeah, issues. Yeah, well, I'm, I wish I had more information on hazmat stuff but uh, i hear the hazmat people really like these things yeah and i was thinking well if you have vehicles that can go into the hazmat area and and really do the sensors and stuff you're gonna less likely to have people get injured or killed you know that's really kind of cool. so it has the potential to save lives but we also have to think about the dire consequences and plan for the consequences of not properly talking about emergency management needs as the infrastructure is changing. Mm. So we need to be talking with our community planners. We need to be talking with our uh, transportation partners and not just from a standpoint of all these dire consequences will happen or this big brother stuff is happening, but we need to have those, those conversations to plan together for these particular futures that could impact us positively or negatively, depending on how we take those conversations and how we build the infrastructure so that people can enjoy their toys Mm -hmm. and enjoy their stuff. Believe me, if I could have a car tote me around, other than I get motion sickness, it would be an interesting (laughs) thing um, to not have to deal with the stress of commuting or to know that commuting is moving faster. It's, you know, Walt Disney's utopia of the people mover. Right, right. Um, right, But now we're living it. And... Are we properly planning for it is my only concern. Are we taking those considerations into effect? As people became reliant on social media as a communication methodology, I am fearful that they will become reliant upon a vehicle that drives itself Mm. and not be able to get out of a dangerous area that they need to get out of quickly. Right. Wow. It's crazy. Well, MJ, we're coming to close to the end here. <laughs> I could talk with you all night long about this. So if somebody was interested in getting a hold of you, how could they find you? Uh, Sacramento County Office of Emergency Services um, or LinkedIn. The Twitter account for Sacramento is Sacramento at Sacramento OES. I tend to respond to Twitter faster than I do email. Okay. 
sad to say. <laughs> um, email is flynnm at sacoes.org. And for those of you that are driving or your pencil's not sharp, we'll definitely have that information on the show notes. And you can find those at emweekly.com or any listening platform that you're using it'll be in the show notes there as well so go ahead and click on there and contact mj if you're looking for more information on this scary but cool topic of of the future so toughest question of the day mm-hmm. what book books or publication do you recommend to an emergency manager to read Ooh, so all of the books on your previous episodes that <laughs> I heard about or that are in the Facebook emergency management group, I have tried to get my hands on. Um, right now, I'm listening to The Coddling of the American Mind, uh-huh. um, which has some political connotations and overtones to it that, you know, depending on which side you're on, you may or may not like. But it basically talks about the safe spaces in American education institutions. Uh-huh. And how that psychologically has changed a generation's thinking. Sure. And I try and look at it from an emergency management perspective of if um, the way we're educating people, the way um, people are looking at societal relationships and how things happen and whether or not they feel in danger based on spoken words or actual actions, we talk about dangerous stuff in our business. Mm -hmm. And if it's not considered safe, how does that impact our language that we use in talking about disaster and preparing and mitigating risk? So um, I'm reading that book with an open mind, thinking how it impacts us professionally. And it's a pretty interesting book so far. Um, Goes into some of the psychological theory and some of the issues that have been raised on different campus events, the Berkeley protests and things that have turned violent um, and maybe some impetus on how those changes and reactions to those changes have happened over time. But I'm focusing on kind of that emergency management perspective. And then there's a book I'm looking at um, reading soon called Primal Leadership. It's actually a really old book um, that was recommended to me a long time ago. But now that it's online as a audible version, (laughs) um, (laughs) I'm going to be uh, uh, getting to that one as soon as I'm done with uh, the coddling of the American mind. Yeah, before the uh, we, before we start recording, MJ and I were talking about the fact that uh, I don't read very much anymore, but I listen a lot. So yeah, I could read again in my driverless car. Yeah, yes, you could. <laughs> yes, you could. Uh, so before I let you go, is there anything that you'd like to say to the emergency manager out there? Uh, you need to start looking at what uh, technologies are coming to your community. Whether you like technology or not, there are things on our doorstep that are happening and get familiar with them and work with your agencies to learn about them and how, you know, is your elected official advocating to bring testing of driverless cars to your community? Mm-hmm. If so, you need to know about it. Right and have a seat at the table. So build those relationships now so that people are asking you about technology and how it affects your community and their response to disasters. Awesome. Well, I'm Jay. It's great seeing you again. <laughs> <laughs> we got to do this again more than three more years later on. Yeah. <laughs>